All right, school is in session. So take your seats and turn up the volume. volume. It's time for the smartest fishing show on the internet. This is the show that dives into everything fishing from tactics and gear to policy and product. Here he is, the fishing professor, Professor Sid Dobrin. So stick around, you might learn something. Step right up and don't be shy because you will not believe your eyes. She's right here behind the glass. You're going to like her because she's got class. You can look inside another world. You get to talk to a pretty girl. She's everything you dream about. But hey, it's all just a dream because you're actually here for the Rodcast. So step right up. Don't be shy and turn up the Inventive Fishing, Fishing Professor Rodcast. I am Sid Dobrin, the Fishing Professor, and I am unquestionably not a beauty. A face for radio, they tell me. But even so, we've got a great episode for you this week because we're going to kick things off with a conversation with one of the premier lure designers currently working in the industry, my old friend Paul Van Reenen of Unfair Lures. And we're going to talk about some of the great lure designs in the Unfair catalog, and we'll tap Paul's global fishing experience for some hints about our own fishing. And after Paul Van Reenen and I chat, I'll lure you in a bit further and take a bourbon break, during which I'll give you my thoughts and assessments of Redemption High Rye Bourbon. And after that bourbon break, well, I'll be singing the blues. Born under a bad sign. Been down since I began to crawl. If it wasn't for bad luck, you know, I wouldn't have no luck at all. Because I'm going to count down my top 10 lures for targeting blues, bluefish. And yes, indeed, it will be you and me and the Blues Brothers for that razor tooth countdown. But before I get to the bluefish, I need to let you know a little something about redfish. Well, a story that involves redfish, and it's a story that a buddy of mine who works with the Florida Fish and Wildlife Conservation Commission told me, and I'm not sure if he told me this at the FWC Redfish Summit last year or if he told me just in passing, but what he said was that he saw this woman walking down the dock carrying a bucket with two big redfish in it. Their tails were sticking straight up and out of the bucket. My buddy, doing his job, asked to see her fishing license. I don't have a fishing license, the woman replies. My buddy asks her to confirm, you don't have a fishing license. And then he asks her if she knows she needs to have a fishing license to fish. And she responds, I wasn't fishing, officer. These redfish are my pets. My buddy asks a bit suspiciously, as law enforcement officers tend to get when you say things like, that's not my beer, or I'm just holding that for a friend, or those redfish are my pets, he asks, the fish in that bucket are your pets. She responds, yes, officer, they need to get their exercise. So about once a week when it's nice out like today, I take him out here, take them out here on the dock, and I let them jump in and swim around a little. They, after all, are fish. They need to swim. And once they're done, I just whistle, and they jump back into my bucket, and we head home. My buddy, of course, gives her that law enforcement officer look of bullshit. I ain't buying this. And she proceeds to say, don't believe me, watch. And she dumps the fish over the side of the dock back into the water. My buddy, ready to call her bluff, says, okay, so whistle them back up and into the bucket. I want to see you call your pet fish. The woman turns to the officer, my buddy, and with a similar I ain't taking your bullshit look, looks him dead in the eye and says, 
What fish? Thank you. It's going to be that kind of a show. Welcome to the Rodcast. All right, my listening crew, we have got a great conversation lined up for you today because we have got Paul Van Reenen of Unfair Lures on the Rodcast today. Paul is not only a premier lure designer, he is also one of the most successful anglers out there. And if my numbers are correct, he has landed more than 516 different species of fish on three different continents. And that translates into some serious world-class angler knowledge. He's also a consummate angler educator. In fact, the first time I met Paul, I was putting my kayak in the water over at Yankeetown, Florida, and Paul was doing the same. He noticed that I had an unfair lure sticker on my yak and that I had an unfair lure tied on one of my rods. So he came over and introduced himself. We ended up fishing together a bit that day. And when Paul landed a nice redfish, he waved me over and showed me the lure in the fish's mouth. He then proceeded to give me a really informative lesson about how the location of the lure in the fish's mouth told us a lot about how the fish had struck the lure and about feeding patterns of fish. And of course, about why the unfair lure had been so successful. It was really interesting and really informative, and since that first lesson, I've had other opportunities to learn from this angling guru, and I know that today's conversation is going to end up teaching us all a thing or three. Now, Paul's lures designs are well known to anglers across the U.S., particularly to inshore anglers, and his design philosophies focus on creating lifelike accuracy in terms of both visual and sonic accuracy, and I'm going to get him to talk about that today. I will admit up front that I am a big fan of unfair lures, and I've learned a lot about lures and the way they work from my past conversations with Paul, and I am confident that what he's going to tell us today will be educational. So Paul, old buddy, old pal, it's great to have you on the Rodcast. Thanks so much for being here. What a privilege to uh, spend a bit of microphone time with you, Said Absolutely a wonderful privilege. Thank you. Uh, thank you. Hey, let's get started with some origin story stuff. Tell us about how you got introduced to fishing and how your passion transformed into this great profession that you have. You know, it goes all the way back to when I was probably about five years old. I used to go fishing with my dad, like so many people, you know, that do that with their fathers. And uh, we lived in the high country in South Africa, you know, very few game fish there. Here and there, a pond with some bass in it, but my dad used to mostly fish for carp. So the one day I went fishing with him and, you know, I tied on, uh, I used to make what's called a meat pie. So we would put a night crawler on a hook and cover it with a little bit of dough partially. And uh, I wanted to throw this bait underneath this bridge piling, you know, and, and my dad said, no, 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 you'll never catch any fish there. And I was adamant, this little tyke, man, I threw my bait over there. I put my rod down. I hardly had a chance to settle, and that rod just doubled over. So I caught a big old carp, and you know, my dad was quite astounded. And You know, from that day on, um, I was quite hooked, you know. And uh, I remember when my dad passed, I was nine years old. Um, you know, I was the youngest of six kids, and all I got basically from my dad was this little small Rapala countdown a Rapala and a little bright orange colored one. And it was covered with like a dimpled paper, like the olden days cigarettes uh, packets used to have, you know. And that was my first little lure I had and I treasured it and I caught so many fish with it. 
So when I started Unfair Lures, you know, and I started painting up lures, you know, what was closest to my heart was that number 15, Hot Orange. So that's basically where my love of fishing came from. You know, um, I've done every facet of fishing, big game, um, rock and surf. I was a distance caster in rock and surf, a super long caster with a fly rod, um, over 200 feet with a fly rod. So it's actually wow. a bit further than 200. But, um, you know, I just love art lure fishing and lure fishing and the creativity that exists around that's fantastic. So 516 species on the life list so far. That's really impressive. I've always been intrigued by anglers that build out long life lists like this as compared to other anglers who are content targeting one, two, or a handful of species over their entire angling lives. Tell me about what catching more than 500 species of fish does for your angler knowledge. You know, um, <clears throat> Sid, you, you know, when I was a young boy, I always set out in life with the philosophy that there was a better mousetrap, for sure. And um, my, my fish tally is actually 358 species on a fly rod and 613 in total. Wow. To <laughs> I mean, it's what's in a number? But I've had a whole lot of fun, you know, and what I typically do is, you know, most times I record barometric pressure, <clears throat> you know, a little bit of weather conditions, you know, what tides, I've, if I fished in one location a number of times, you know, what tides I would do better in, et cetera, et cetera. And um, uh, that's just basically my curiosity, you know. Well, I got to say, that's not only impressive, it's uh, jealousy inducing. And it just makes me want to get out and, Go catch more fish in more places. All right. So, yeah, yeah sorry. Yeah, no, go ahead. No, no, no. Um, it, 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 it is. Um, it does kind of give you a bit of confidence, you know, when you go to a location you may have been to before, or you've caught speckled trout and redfish in winter conditions. And you go to a completely new area, you know, you, you've got a very good idea where you're going to get those big old sour trout, you know, so it does give you a lot of confidence, I must say. I would imagine so. All right, before we get to the lures, I want to do a bit of professor in here and talk about some language stuff. And I want to tell you a quick story, all right? About a month ago, I was traveling and I was sitting at a hotel bar and the guy bartending was South African fellow like yourself. But the idiot sitting a few bar stools down from me kept telling his girlfriend that the bartender was obviously Australian and kept trying to tease the bartender with inane down under jokes and things like that. And I, of course, <laughs> being the big mouth that I am, hollered down the bar to the guy that the bartender was probably a Springboks fan, not a Wallabies fan, and certainly not an All Blacks fan. The guy didn't get it at all. Anyway, a lot of folks tend to get the accents confused. Now, the reason I bring this up is that several of your lures carry the moniker of dinkum, which is a word that originates in Australia and New Zealand that basically means authentic or genuine. But here's yeah. the thing. That word is most often used in combination with the word fair, as in, I was fair dinkum about how many fish I caught. But you shifted that to unfair, as in the unfair Paul's dinkum shrimp or the unfair Paul's dinkum mullet. 
So give us a little language lesson about unfair and dinkum and how you name your lures. You know, um, in, in our, you know, the South Africans, just a little short snippet, you know, we, we actually get on very well with the Australians and the New Zealanders and the Celts, but we don't have any taste for the English. <laughs> I'm sorry, I just have to be real with you. And that distaste goes all the way back to our Boer War. And uh, the Americans experienced the same, you know, if you watch that Patriot movie. But anyhow, <laughs> um, the word dinkum, you know, dinkum is, is, is quite a well-used word in the, in, in the English language, not so much in the United States, but in the Oxford English language. Let me say that. Well, you're a professor of English, you will know. So if you tell somebody a story in Australia, like, man, I shot a 50-pound um, grouper with a, with, a, with a crossbow, you know, something silly, a guy will look at you and you'll say, fair dinkum. In other words, are you kidding me? You know, that's the basic, the gist of it. Like, fair dinkum, you know, that's like, no way. So um, now naming my lures, you know, I designed 100% of everything, even the logo, the boxes, the everything. And when I was looking at my logo, <clears throat> my wife, Beulah, came and looked. And she looked at the logo and she said, you know what, lovey, these lures are going to be unfair. And that's where the name unfair lures came from. And then, uh, the obviously, Paul is a designer. So Paul's Dinkum Shrimp, Actually, to me, it was just a, a poetic name for Paul's real fair dinkum shrimp. In other words, you know, my shrimp, uh, they, they're ageless designs because live baits will never go out of fashion. Fish will always eat live baits. So my shrimp is an exact mold of a living shrimp and even moves in the correct direction. Same with a mullet, same with a greenie, et cetera, et cetera. So <clears throat> the dinkum was just the real deal. Paul's real deal mullet. Paul's real deal shrimp, et cetera. That's just a, a little bit of a background for folks out there that didn't know. That's excellent. I, I will admit, I didn't know the relationship there between dinkum and unfair, but now, now it makes sense to me. All yes, right. Sir. So we want to focus a bunch of today's conversation on your lures and strategies for using those lures and on the unfair portfolio of lures. And to begin that conversation, it would seem evident to start with the fantastic, fantastic hard baits you've designed. But I want to wait a minute or two before getting to those hard baits, because just before the COVID era, Unfair introduced a line of soft plastic lures that include the Smack Shad, the Smack Tail, and the Smack Paddle, and the Smack Shrimp. And just before you released those, you and I were fishing together over at Chazwiska, an area you and I both know well, with our mutual friend, Captain Randy Cribs. And the weather wasn't great, and we weren't doing so well. But as we sat there on the boat, you gave me a lesson about TPE plastics, a material that has become quite popular in soft body lure manufacture recently. And you taught me about TPE. And I said, I really wish I had recorded that conversation because I don't think anyone has explained TPE as clearly as you did that day on the boat. So before we get into the unfair soft bodies, tell me again, because I'm forgetful and old, and because I want to share your plastic know-how with my listeners, how TPE works and why it's such a great material for lure manufacturing. Okay, so 
Um, when, when we, well, I decided to transition over to a range of soft plastics, uh, said I definitely did not want to use the two-pack plastisol plastics, the common plastics, because what a lot of people don't know, and you can actually find it and read about it on NOAA's website, is that they leach synthetic estrogen into fish's guts. So bass in the Midwest are disappearing because Fishermen fish, you know, little senkos and things like that. And these bass are ingesting these worms because they've got uh, a flavoring and like a, you know, they salt impregnated, etc. And then they're actually fish are dimorphic, you know, they can change sex. So the bass actually, they, they lose interest in guarding their nests and the, um, uh, sorry, um, like bluegill and things like that will come over and just eat the entire nest up. So that's how we are actually depopulating our lakes with toxic plastics. And let's face facts. I mean, most of those plastics, one or two fish if you're lucky, and then you get your jig back and, and it's empty. It's, it's void of a plastic. So that plastic is actually destroying our environment. And I, at the off offset, and I hope I'm not offending anybody. I don't mean to offend. It's just, you know, unfair lures and myself and my designs, I always choose to take the higher road. Now, thermoplastic elastoma or TPE is a single uh, pack of plastic. It's actually a granule that you would put into a machine that would melt it and then you would add your color and you would add your glitter, et cetera, et cetera. The, Thermoplastic elastomer that we use in unfair lures um, almost completely biodegrades with ultraviolet light. And the cool thing about it is if it does come off a hook or come off a jig, it actually floats. So you can take your bass boat over there or you can take your boat. If you've lost a lure, you'll see it floating somewhere. You can go and actually retrieve it if you so wish and fix it with a soldering iron where it's ripped. Or um, the wind will drive that bait onto a shoreline somewhere and the tide will lift it up and deposit it further into the grass where the sun will biodegrade it into an ash so that it doesn't actually become, you know, a toxic element to the environment where our fish are. And our fish are under pressure. We need to do everything we can, especially our inshore fish, you know, to, to sustain that population, etc., so that is why I chose TPE. And the, the very cool thing about TPE is that it's buoyant, as I said. So when you actually attach the TPE or, or you attach an unfair lure like a smack shad or a smack ship onto a jig head, it, if you use it under like a popping cork, the bait doesn't actually suspend perpendicular um, or actually vertical to the bottom. It just doesn't hang like a dead bait. It actually hangs horizontal to the bottom because the bait actually floats the jig head up and the weight, the, the lead in the jig head actually keeps it, you know, moored in one position. And then just by just leaving it, just the current in the water makes that smack shad swim. I do have some um, videos on the unfair lures page if people go back of the smack shad swimming in a tank. And it's unreal. I mean, um, <clears throat> how you can pitch a, a, a bait ahead of a, a very spooky redfish, 10 feet ahead of that fish, and just leave it on the bottom. And as that fish approaches, just the tidal movement has got that little smack shad's tail going to and fro. So it looks like a little cockahoe minnow or a little mud minnow, you know, grubbing on the bottom. 
because that's its posture. You know, the jig head anchors it to the bottom, literally, and its tail is in the air, so it looks like it's grubbing. So a TPE is a, is a little bit more expensive than your plastisol type baits. But this, here's another thing. If you've ever been to a big lure manufacturing concern that makes regular soft plastics, I tell you, said in China, the factories there that make soft plastics have got waste piles as big as a house in your subdivision. I'm not lying to you. Literally 25 feet high, maybe 50, 60 feet long and about 40 feet wide. They can do nothing with it. It's just, it, it's just, there's nothing they can do with it. Where the TPE, I can reuse and reuse. I have less than comma 5% waste. I'm serious with you, comma 5% waste. So when we mold one color, so the little bit of slag that's left over of that, we mix with another color slag and we end up with, let's say, um, like, uh, like money and we'll add a little bit of yellow in it or we'll add a bit of chartreuse, you know, et cetera, et cetera. But we, we've got literally no waste, which I'm very, very proud of. That's fantastic. That's absolutely fantastic. And the cool thing about the TPE bait, sorry, sir. Oh, if, if they ever become, if they ever become um, bent in a bait, now sometimes you put like a pack of soft plastics in your bag and, you know, weeks or months later, you know, you'll discover this bag and it's bent. And your soft plastics are bent as well. Your baits are actually uh, deformed. You can get a pot of hot water, like just just short of boiling, like simmering. And you put those baits in the hot water. They actually float. They will actually straighten out just with a sheer heat. And you lift them out with a fork and you put them into a pot of ice water, water with ice cubes or icy water. And they set. So there's your bait fixed. No, no need to throw them away. You can actually reuse them and you can reshape them again. And you said that if they were torn, like a puncture from a hook or a jig head, you can use a soldering iron or a, a, a yeah, small a tip, You know, that's right. So, I mean, you get these little, if you really are so frugal, you get these little pro, or propane powered soldering irons in a little kit. So, you, you know, you turn the torch on and it's got a little probe on the front and you just push it into the bait and then pull it out and then just push the bait down with your fingers and it'll, it'll collapse that hole and just melt itself into a, into a bait again. I shouldn't tell you that, but, you know, <laughs> I'm, you know I, like I said, man, you know, for myself and people that fish unfair lures, we always choose the higher road. Right, instead of that planned obsolescence where I have to go buy another bag. Yeah. And and in your in that series, you've got the smack shad, the smack tail, the smack paddle, and the smack shrimp. Am I missing anything of the of the soft bodies? That's that's what we have. <clears throat> that smack shrimp is unreal. It is an exact copy of a living shrimp. And if you put it in a in a um, our slipper jig, it's a little jig that's got a flat facet to it. It doesn't have eyes on it. You you rig that in the back of the shrimp, and you stick it under a popping cork. That shrimp sits parallel with the bottom. When you pop your cork, it actually will, you know, will, will go backwards and you can rig it either which way, but it's so realistic that the fish just smash it. And your, your soft bodies and then the jig heads that you have, um, from my experience, they also stay on the jig head better. They're not sliding off as often, even after several hits. And you've got those little rubber bands for rigging to keep it on also. Yeah, you see... Um, uh, Sid, when I when I designed those little jig heads of mine, 
I absolutely did not want to have baits coming off because, you know, essentially, truthfully, everything in Unfair Lures is designed for me. It's for my own pleasure, for my own peace of mind, the way I want it and no other way, period. So the little hooks at the back of the head of the Unfair um, jig heads, you'll see the jig head has actually got a concave. So when you push your bait on there, you can actually give it a good push and those uh, little eagle claws, those little talons on the top and bottom, will actually grip into the bait. But the cool part is, is um, you know, I've given the, the chin of the of the jig head a little bit of a divot so that if you use those little elastics, you can make your jig head weedless in the first place by, because all our hooks are outside barbed. Or you can just hook the, the, the little elastic on the front of the jig and slip it around the back of the bend of the hook to where the soft bait actually, where the hook comes out of the soft bait. And it holds that bait in place. The bait can't come off the hook. So that's a really cool, um, you know, little uh, a tweak to what we can do with our unfair lures jig heads. Yeah, they're they're fantastic. I'm going to come back in a minute to those reverse mm -hmm. barb hooks because I want to talk about that. But um, let's let's shift over to the the core of the unfair catalog and let's talk about the hard body lures. And first, talk to us about your philosophies of lure design, because all of your lures carry a kind of style that is unique to Unfair, that unlike a lot of other lure companies, when you see an Unfair lure, you know it's an Unfair lure because it carries that Unfair style. Like you can tell a painter or a musician's work because you know their style. So what is the Paul Van Reenen approach to lure design and style? Um, once again, you know... Um, said when I transitioned to lure manufacturing and lure fishing, you know, I love fly fishing, but you know, when people come up to me, a kid comes up to me and he says, you know, he says to his dad, Hey dad, I want to get a fly rod. Will you buy me a fly rod for my birthday? And he comes to me. I used to be sponsored by G Loomis. And the guy would say to me, wow, this is a nice rod. How much does that rod cost? And I'd say, well, $895. That kid's getting a damn iPhone for his birthday, which he doesn't mm -hmm. need. So when I came over to the lure fishing um, game, I always knew that fish, you know, we, we match the hatch in the fly fishing world. So I always knew that a fish hunts with its lateral line more than it does by sight. Because if you take the dirty water on, you know, in the Gulf Coast and the inshore waters, et cetera, and turbid water, if a fish had to be hunting by eye, by eyesight, that fish would look like a credit card, fat one way and, and almost you couldn't see it the other way. It would be like a piece of paper. So fish hunt extensively with lateral line sonic signature. And as a trout gets bigger, you know, it learns what a shrimp is. It learns what a little mullet is, you know, what a pinfish is. It learns what different bait fishes are. At certain seasons, they key in on certain baits. Like, for example, sakes on the mullet run, on the East Coast mullet run, the first year that when I came to, you know, to the States in 2011, um, I didn't have my baits. We were still busy making the molds, et cetera. And I was using every lure manufacturer's M-U-L-L-E-T on the market, throwing them out there to those sharks and tarpon, big snook, redfish. And all I could catch, I tell you, Sid, was jacks, ladyfish, and bluefish what they call trash fish. They're still fun fish to catch. But those snook and those redfish and et cetera and tarpon, they were so keyed in on those mullet 
that whatever you threw in the water, if the sonic signature wasn't right, they just would ignore it. I put some baits well casted in front of some of those fish. They just turned the other way. It's okay, thanks. So when my first mullets came out and I got that five-inch mullet, the following year, I did a trip down to the East Coast, you know, Melbourne area, and my wife was with me. I don't think I made 10 casts that morning from daybreak up until midday. I was on fish permanently. I was bent over, buckled over on fish, and every single time I threw that mullet in there, it got whacked. So, um, you know, if you look at the Paul's Dinka mullet, it's an exact mold of a living mullet. The shrimp is an exact mold. And I had a very dear friend of mine called Curtis Bossy. He's a, a master taxidermist out of Melbourne who actually helped me do the initial molding. So we'd chill these baits down and he'd put like a little needle through it and he'd make a mold of one side. We'd make a mold of the other side. And I would send these hard fiberglass molds, you know, to somebody that does what they call a stereolithography model. They do a scan. And then they reciprocate the scan on the other side so they make a mirror image of both sides so that it's perfect. And then they print it in plastic. And um, so that's how I came up with my mullets, my greenie, which is essentially a thread fin herring. You could call it a shad in the freshwater. But that greenie is deadly on bass. It is deadly. And um, obviously, too, you know, the, the shrimp. So... And then I have some slightly generic uh, shapes, like, for example, sakes, my cigar minnow is Paul's Rip and Slash. Now, I couldn't make it to be the accurate length of a cigar minnow. But, you know, when ordnance flies through the air, the, the front of the ordnance actually starts a sonic signature and the back of the ordnance actually completes it. So all I did is I took that cigar minnow and I made it shorter. That's why that Rip and Slash is such a deadly bait. Okay, so given all that, let's talk about the arrowhead. We'll come back to the rip and slash again. You know that the arrowhead is one of my favorites in your portfolio. You often describe that lure as a kind of generic lure that mimics a bunch of different bait fish, like penfish, pigfish, sand perch, and so on. I tend to think of it as a great search bait, and it's a lure that I use very consistently. So talk to me about the arrowhead and why you came up with that design. Okay, um, I omitted some detail now that I'm sitting thinking about, you know, the <laughs> of my lures, but we will get back to that. So remind me about that. So okay. Paul's arrowhead, <clears throat> you know, I was looking at a pinfish shape and, you know, you, you can't really design a lure that looks like a pinfish that actually casts and fishes well. It, it, it's just one of those shapes that just doesn't work. So, you know, I narrowed the profile down and I, you know, and I gave it a little bit of a sharp edge, almost like an arrowhead. And um, the thing with the arrowhead and the dynamic balancing we have inside of it is that when you twitch it, it shoots one way. And then when you twitch it again, because of the angle of where your leader is, as opposed to the bait, it shoots the other way again and it suspends beautifully. In fact, if you take an arrowhead in clean water, and you just drop it in the water and you just let it sink down to the bottom. It'll slowly suspend it. Actually, the rip and slash and the arrowhead and the greenie, they suspend on the front treble look. Have you noticed they don't fall over on the bottom? They actually sit like a living bait. And one of the deadliest things about that arrowhead is, you know, if you're fishing a weed line like in Port St. Joe area where there's a lot of flounder 
and you can see like an edge where you know there's going to be flounder. You throw your bait there, you drop it on the bottom and you relax it and you reach forward to the rod and you wind your slack in and you rip that lure. It makes like a puff of sand and mud and then you settle it onto the bottom again. You'll only do it twice. <laughs> only twice and you'll be on. That, that's a that's a hard guarantee for you to make there, Paul. I'm going to take you up on that and uh, start yeah. counting my, my twitches. Yeah. So... We haven't really talked about it, but the arrowhead's a great example to use to get at it. Tell us about the bleeding gills feature of your lures. This is a feature I haven't seen on any other lure I've fished with. Well, you shouldn't see it on any other lures because we've got it covered so well in our patent. Um, that was my very first lure patent uh, that, that uh, was granted to us. And, you know, if you look at, if you go into a, a fishing tackle store and you see how many baits have actually got red painted on the side of their gills, you know, which which um, signifies or supposed to um, illustrate exsanguination, you know, which is actually, you know, the blood seeping out from an injury. But when that, when you follow that lure from behind or the front, et cetera, it's, it's monodimensional. It's one-dimensional. You can't see it. So what we did is, is we added a little gill slit and a flared gill slightly so that there's turbulence every time that you move that bait. And then the filaments of our gill is exactly the perfect length where if you rip the bait and you suspend it, just the turbulence around the lure actually makes that mylar twinkle. It twinkles and it's red. And um, it's so effective. You know, I've uh, one kid down in... Um, Ports and uh, Lucy Stewart area called Ryan Jupy caught over 240 fish on one rip and slash. It had no paint left. Didn't even have eyes on it. It was white. It was just a primer paint. It still had its gill and he was still murdering the fish with it, you know, so it was pretty cool. But yeah, yeah. that's basically the idea to, to have a proper bleeding gill, you know, that, that actually looks realistic. And also then it makes my, if you look at the logo of Unfair Lures, it's got that red bleeding gill in the logo. So it sets our lures apart a little bit, you know, if you throw them in a, in a, in a, bun, in like in a, a bag. Oh, there's no doubt. It's part of the, it's part of the ethos. It's part of the, 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 uh, the, the, the branding. It's, it's, you can't have an unfair hard lure without that gill. Yeah. No doubt about it. Yes. So, sir. And, yeah. No, go ahead. And another thing you'll find on an unfair lure in the front is a tiny little stainless steel swivel. You know, that thing is key to an unfair lure because all day fishing, you've got no twist in your line. You can make a terrible knot and it won't actually clinch, you know, sit on the eyelet of the bait and cause the bait to swim incorrectly. You've always got a loose union on the front of your bait. So yeah, that rigging feature is great. Yeah. All right, so there's another feature on the arrowhead that appears on a lot of your other lures, and you mentioned it already, and it's very unique to your designs. And like I said, you mentioned it a moment ago. We don't see it a lot in the U.S., and even less frequently in saltwater baits. You know, Some walleye anglers use it, and that's the transverse barbs on your hook. Talk to us about why you do the transverse barbed hook. Okay, so I was hoping you were going to get there. You will notice, too, that the rigging wires coming out of the baits are all transverse and unfailures, which means if you want to take a treble hook off, you can just hook a single hook on there, providing that the hook's eye is big enough for the splittering, and it rides correctly like a scorpion tail and like a plowshare on the bottom. 
Most other lures, you've got to use two split rings or you've got to buy a specialized hook with an upright eye. So I brought my lures out with a, with a transverse eyelet straight away. Um, now, the, the outside barb hooks, there's a number of reasons for that. One, if you look at the long line fishing industry, almost 100% of the time, the long line hooks are all reverse barb because you get about a 60% quicker hook set with a reverse barb hook than a traditional barbed hook. Because if you take, do the exercise at home, put a piece of monofilament through the eye of a hook, and just get a little piece of wooden plank or you know something that you can set the point of the hook in, and then you hold your, your plank 90 degrees upright and pull 90 degrees away from the plank. In other words, your plank is 12 o'clock, 6 o'clock, and you're pulling three o'clock, nine o'clock. You pull that and take up the tension on the point of the hook. You'll see that hook has got a about a 30 degree yaw angle. And a J hook can be as bad as 45 degrees. So instead of the point of the hook going in, as you suppose, like a, like a, a, a nurse giving you a shot of medication, this hook is actually going in at a very steep angle. And when the barb hits the flesh, it's actually a doorstop. So if you ultimately can force that hook in past the barb, as the flesh goes over the barb, it cuts a keyhole, like a buttonhole on your shirt. And that's why a lot of fish, you know, I fish with so many people and, you know, the guy's got a fish on, et cetera, and he says, oh, damn, it spat the hook. Well, I'm sorry to tell you, it, it, was, it, it never spat the hook. The hook was loose. When it shook, you know, you had a, literally a one-inch diameter wire um, just for illustration purposes, and you had a 12-inch size hole that's trying to hold that wire in place. So the outside barb hook, when you actually set the hook, same sort of a yaw angle happens, except the unfair lure hooks are slightly curved inwards the points to make them more efficient. When you pull that hook in, the hook is actually pulling like a little, little hole, the wire, and the barb slips into that hole without cutting it any bigger. Now, the very cool part about that is, is that, you know, when you fish um, trophy fish, you know, I, I never kill a trout over 19 inches. I, it's, it's, it, is, it just does not happen on my boat, and it just, I just don't do it. But when you have an unfair lure, and a lot of fish, if you've, I mean, Sid, you will know from experience, a lot of fish, when you land them, that unfair lure is all the way down in its gullet. Because the sonic signature is correct, that fish is feeding a, not a reaction strike, but a predatory strike. So oftentimes you find that your treble hooks are hooked around the gill rakers, etc. Now with an inside barb hook, as that fish is fighting, the, the, the barb is actually slicing the filaments on the, the, the gill rakers, <clears throat> slicing them and cutting them, and that fish actually dies of you know, blood loss while you're still fighting so with the outside barb hook, you can literally, literally by holding the fish upright, you can take the leader and just drop the bait into its throat and, and, and the hook will actually come off its gill rack automatically. So it's, it's for conservation purposes too, but one of the biggest reasons why I use an outside barb hook too is how often do we see fishermen that have hooked themselves? I got a guy at the Sebastian Inlet once with a hook just below his eye, through his eyelid, and into the socket of his eye. I won't mention the lure brand, but he had to go to the emergency room. 
other times with an out with, with the outside Bob, um, I actually had a, a dog walker, which is one of my big lures, stuck in a mangrove, and I ripped it out. And this dog walker came at me like a missile. I put my hand up, and it hit me in the palm of my hand, and buried two hooks up to the bend in my hand. So the cool part of that, I was able to just reach into my pocket with my Leatherman, pull the hook away from the barb. In other words, you release pressure on the barb and you just back the point out. Uh, I, I freed myself in literally five seconds. Apart from the, the dented pride, you know, you carry on fishing. So that is the real reason for the outside barb hooks on the unfailures. They, they are a superior hook. I, I very much enjoy fishing with them. I have not hooked myself in the hand with them. I'm not going to test that uh, that theory. Um, I have put a fly in my uh, my eyelid and pulled it out, so I know how that feels. Um, I'm glad to know that about the transverse hooks. I had always wanted to ask you about that. All right, let's, let's shift over. You mentioned already the rip and slash, so let's talk about the rip and slash because this is one of the most popular unfair lures. And there's both a slow suspending model and a topwater model. So talk to us about the rip and slash. Okay, so um, with, with all my lure designs, etc., I found in a short space of time, um, and this was actually not a sad story, but you know, my wife and I, she got so fed up with me working three, four days at a time, you know, with my designs and, and setting up unfair lures that she actually went back home to South Africa to go and, you know, spend time with the kids. And I was on my own in Sebastian at the time. And when I got my first unfair lures bodies, they were hollow. So they'd molded the outside for me, but we haven't figured out yet where the weights needed to go. And on a cold December, about the 24th or 26th of December, it was around Christmas, you know, I launched my boat and I was like feeling quite sorry for myself alone. I had my rod and my reel and I had this, this a couple of rip and slashes that I'd painted with nail varnish and experimented with little weights inside as to how they would float, et cetera, et cetera. And in this one area, I could not believe how many fish I caught that day. I caught so many fish that my, I could hardly pick my arms up. And that's when I knew that the rip and slash, one, one bait for sure, is such a foolproof, mistake-proof, easy-to-fish lure that you could literally be thrown out of an airplane with a pole and a rip and slash, provided you got a parachute. <laughs> you know, uh, you would have food in your belly by the end of the day. That's just how it is. And um, it is just a fabulous bait. Um, so, you know, it is my own bait, but, you know, I'm very objective. Um, you know, I look at a lot of other people's baits, etc. But, you know, typically when I go fish, you know, I know if there's fish in the water where I'm fishing, I'm going to start with, with my 308. <laughs> and then I'll move on to the 338 Lapua. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know, just figuratively. Yeah. So... Like I said, the rip and slash comes in that slow suspending model and that top water model, but it's not your only top water. Um, talk about the dog walker, which is a really outstanding top water that has this really tight, really narrow walking action. I want to hear about the dog walker. I'm going to do the dog walker, explain the dog walker for you. Then I'm going to come back to the rip and slash top water. 
Okay. I think my mind is whirring, said it's so exciting talking to you, you know, and talking about my baits. It's like somebody talking about their grandchildren, you know. <laughs> but at the dog walker, okay, once more, you know, with its weight shifting trans uh, technology inside, it's the kind of top order where I tell you truthfully, it it costs so far that where it lands, that bait, you have the element of surprise. And you can barely see it walking at that distance. But if you listen carefully, if the wind's right, you can hear it. You can hear it. But yes, it has a narrow walk, but you'll see it's got a little cup on the front of its face. So the narrow walk is to actually, uh, oftentimes with, with walking top waters, fish get hooked on the top of their heads, on the side of the gill cover, et cetera, et cetera. And, um, you have them on momentarily and they get off. Now, for my tournament anglers, like Captain Jeremy Himes, who's won the Florida Pro Redfish Tour numerous times, you know, he loves that dog walker because of the narrow walk. He can walk it narrow deliberately, and then he can also just retrieve it slowly and give it a pop of the rod tip. That little cup on the front makes it spit. So you can walk it, you can make it spit, etc. But I want to come back to that rip and slash top water. Now, it is a bait that people lose patience with and they just put it away and they never use it again. It is my deadly top water. Long casting. So if you reel it steadily with a rod tip down, it becomes a wake bait. So it pops up a little bit and it makes it pushes a nice wake. It you know pops back up again, wakes this way, wakes that way. If you walk it with a rod tip up, You'll see it'll, it'll pop and walk a little bit, pop, walk, pop, walk. But it's always lining itself up. So when a predatory fish is underneath it and it decides to strike, one of the things that, that bait do is they jump and they go in a linear direction, which makes it easier for the fish to predate successfully. So when I see a boiling fish behind a topwater, like my rip and slash topwater, if I see there's a fish there but it won't commit, I actually point my rod right forward to where my lure is and I reel up all the slack and I give it about a three-foot pop of the rod tip. And what actually happens at rip and slash, 90% of the time, it'll actually jump. It'll jump about a yard. It'll launch itself clean out of the water and back in the water again. And I've seen it dozens and dozens of times. So when that bait hits the water, it's all over. It hits the water, there's an almighty splash and you're tight. So why so is it that people get frustrated with it then? You know, because they want a walking bait. They want to see clock, 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 side to side, side to side, but that shape doesn't um, lend itself to that. You know, you need a longer bait, more like a cigar-shaped bait, etc., to make it walk, you know. And then another deadly top water too is the mullet top water, the floating mullet, because people try and walk that bait, and it's not designed to walk. How does a mullet swim? In a straight line, straight down a shoreline, leaving a little V-wake. You want to do exactly that with the unfailed mullet too. Exactly the same thing. You want to match the hatch, mimic the bait. Deadly bait. Right. And I think one of the important things that you're saying there too is so many times when we say match the hatch or we say match the bait, we tend to think about that simply as a visual match. We don't tend to think about the swimming action as part of the match. And as you talked about a moment ago, about the sonic signature of the match also. 
And I guess that also opens the door for us to come back to the greenie, which you promote specifically for its sonic signature. But the match the hatch is more than just a visual uh, activity. That's 100% correct. Um, sonic signature is important. You know, bait has also got to look nice for a fisherman because fish don't have credit cards. So that's just the truth. <laughs> you know, baits have got to look nice as well. Um, presentable, but, um, you know, under the water when you're fishing, you know, that sonic signature makes all the difference. You know, I've fished many, many, many times. I actually used to say I own the Sebastian Inlet. I'll argue with you. I would go there with my greenie at night, that four-inch greenie, and when I'm at like 10 or 12 snook, I was there one night with one of the associates at work at Strike Zone in Melbourne. And he came over to me and he said to me, what the foxtrot have you got on your rod? I've been fishing here and I've been fishing here all my life. I can't buy a snook and you're like, you're on your 10th snook already. So I said, uh, give me that lure of yours. And it was a well-known brand of stick bait. So I took it off, cut it off, put it in his bag. I tied him a lure and I said to him, now cast it 45 degree up current and just barely twitch your rod and mend your line. Keep your line off the water so that it doesn't drag. And you twitch, twitch, and you suspend it, and you reel up the slack, and you twitch, 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 like a bewildered greenie at night, like a lost greenie, you know, that they, they, they disoriented. And his first cast, Boom, 42-inch snook. So um, that that matching the hatch and that sonic signature at night, where fish can't see at night. I mean, but but with that lateral line of his, he's hunting in stereo. We think of a lateral line as only one because most fish pictures, you only see one side of the fish. But it's an upside-down GPS with play, with numerous nodes all the way down the, the port side and down the starboard side triangulating for what they know ahead of them and above them. I don't know if you know this or not. I don't know if we've ever talked about this. My folks live a couple of miles up the beach from Sebastian, and I have spent a good chunk of my life fishing that inlet from that pier. We must go there. We must go there at night for sure. That sounds great to me. I, I used to fish it before, before the hurricane, and we lost half of that end out in the pier and cast out toward Monster Hole big gold spoons, let them settle down and get those big bull reds out there. Yeah, that's right. All right. So tell us about the Dinkum shrimp. One of my all-time favorite shrimp imitators and folks who know me know that I write about shrimp imitators a lot and talk about shrimp imitators a lot. And the Dinkum shrimp is one of my faves. Okay. So yes, sir. Um, once again, it's molded from a living shrimp. And I put a lot of fly tying detail into that shrimp. If you look at it, you know, it's got little eyes that move. They, 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 um, I think this is, um, it's actually a, um, a stalk that's uh, molded. Those little eyes are molded on actual braided line. So they're super strong. The hook has got a little bit of mylar on it so that when you cast the shrimp, the unfair uh, shrimp, you'll find that the, it'll transfer that treble hook to the belly of the lure towards where, you know, the part that you would eat normally to, to, to like the trunk of the, of the shrimp so that it flies nicely like a dart. And then the converse, as soon as you start retrieving the shrimp, it'll put the hook right where the, the strike is going to take place. So the, the unfair dinkum shrimp is um, line attached under the tail so that we have a patent on that. Um, it's, it is actually an upside-down crankbait. So any live shrimp, when, when it's getting chased by a predatory fish, 
they use the part that you eat to get out of dodge with, you know, and they usually scoot up to the surface and you see them skipping on the top of the water. So the unfair shrimp, same thing. If you're fishing two, three feet of water where there's like redfish that are tailing, throw past your fish, you know, bring your unfair shrimp to the surface and just give it a good smash, you know, just a little whack so that it creates a bit of sound and a little bit of commotion. And then you can walk the dog with it. You can tap, 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 and then let it settle and tap, 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 and, and, and settle it, et cetera. Um, just a fantastic bait, fantastic. And once again, um, it's also a bait that you have to think about using carefully because a lot of people use the, the, the dinkum shrimp in the middle of the day, which is not really a time when a predatory fish would expect to find a shrimp. Shrimp are nocturnal. So low light conditions, early morning, late evening, the shrimp is dead. However, I've fished some of the marshes in Louisiana and, and caught probably 150 uh, trout and redfish on the same shrimp all day, not changing a bait. So, you know, you do get those conditions. But um, underneath the popping cork, one of the problems with a lot of artificial shrimp under a cork is you pop, pop the cork, and that bait with a jig head will come and suspend like a like a like a wiener underneath the popping cork. Where the unfair dinkum shrimp, if you pop the cork with about a 20-inch leader, 22, 24 inch leader, depending on your water depth, when you pop your cork, just keep retrieving the cork slowly. The shrimp is always suspended at about a 45 degree plus through your popping cork. So your leader goes through your cork to where your shrimp is. So that when the strike takes place, you're directly on your drag. You're not actually straightening a dog leg underneath your cork. It's deadly. It is deadly under a popping cork. So it is, um, it is a fantastic lure. Yep. So I, I do I do very well with it. It's it's absolutely one of my favorites. Paul, this has really been fantastic. And before we wrap this up. I want to ask you our traditional wrap-up question, but I have to say that given more, your more than expansive life list, I'm really kind of intrigued to ask you this simply because you've already logged so many species, but I'm going to ask, just like I ask everybody on the Rodcast, what's your grail fish? What's that bucket list fish that's still out there that you really want to catch? <laughs> You're not going to believe it. I've not caught a blackfin tuna yet. Really? I've not caught a blackfin tuna. I've never had the opportunity to put a lure in front of a blackfin tuna, believe it or not. Of all the fishing I've done, never. I've caught so many kingfish and um, not caught wahoo yet. That's also, you know, a very sort of a niche, very difficult species to catch just on art lure, you know. But, you know, obviously you could sight fish one if you happen to see one in the open ocean somewhere. But um, I would love to go salmon fishing in Alaska. That is absolutely on my bucket list you know to go there but yes blackfin tuna is one of them um i've caught lots of giant trevally you know um another fish that i really would like to catch but almost impossible on a lure is a milkfish or dandang it's also called a charnos charnos you guys fish for them in the indian ocean a lot you know seychelles and you get them in south africa you get them all over the place I think those are fantastic bucket list fish. I will tease you a little bit and say that of all the tuna I've caught, I've probably caught more blackfin than anything else. Uh, I love blackfin fishing. Um, yeah. I, I spend a lot of time in Alaska, so much so that I've got a salmon tattooed on my leg. I love salmon fishing in uh, in Alaska. Yeah, that's absolutely on my bucket list, I must say. 
Yeah, I was thinking when you said that about Wahoo, you know, because your designs are so much directed at inshore casting that, you know, you don't do any trolling lures and you don't do any of the bigger game lures that uh, it, it would be kind of fun to chum up some blackfin and get a rip and slash out there and get blackfin on a, on a rip and slash. Yeah, yeah, that uh, that really would be quite exciting. I have a friend in the Big Bend, uh, one of the finest fishermen I've ever met in my life, called Captain John Vatter. He's in uh, Wakala Beach. Wakala, I know him. Yep. Yeah, he's uh, just he's just one. He's just a phenomenal fisherman. But uh, you know, him and I have a date sometime to go out looking for some blackfin and uh, catch some on some unfair lures. That would be great fun. That's fantastic. I want to hear about that. Actually, I want to be there, but uh, you got to tell me about that when that happens. Definitely will do. Definitely. I want to see those pictures. Paul, this has all been fantastic, and I can't thank you enough for taking the time to talk with me today. I really appreciate it. I really appreciate everything you've taught me over the years, and you know, I will continue to fish unfair lures. And I just want to say thanks for being on the Rodcast. Yeah, that's been absolutely such a privilege, you know, Sid. And, you know, one of the amazing things about our friendship, you know, we can be, you know, not speak to each other for six months. And the next time we talk, we just pick up where we left off, you know, Sid. So I got to absolutely also thank you for everything that you do for all us fishermen and the information and, you know, just your your pure objectivity and everything that you do. You know, you are an outstanding, outstanding friend. And uh, just I just can't say enough about what you do for us. Thank you, Sid. I appreciate that. Oh, thanks, Paul. I'm so glad this is an audio podcast so people don't see me blushing. <laughs> You're way better than what you you look at, than what you say you are, Sid. And I keep <laughs> looking at those inventive fishing videos. They are so cool. In fact, we should do one at some stage where the unfailure soft plastics. Um, that would be a it. really cool one to do. Absolutely. I am as soon as my boat comes out of the shop, I'm hoping to start doing more video work again. So we will get that on the calendar. Paul, well, thank you so much, and I will talk to you soon. And God bless to all our listeners and all our friends of Unfailures, man. And God bless his fantastic United States. This place has been so good to me, and I was able to become a citizen a few months ago. And uh, I just love the United States. Absolutely. You know, this is a country that God gave to mankind, really. Amen to that, Paul. Thank you. Well, my listening crew, after that fantastic conversation, I think it's time we take a bourbon break because that conversation put me in one of those sit by the water, light a campfire, light a cigar and pour a nice, neat bourbon to round out the day kind of moods. And since I happen to have a bottle of Redemption's High Rye Bourbon right here on hand, I think I'll pour from that and offer up my thoughts about it. And if you scroll back to episode 1.26 of the Rodcast, you can hear my review of Redemption Bourbon. So I figure it's time to look at the variation on the bourbon with their high rye bourbon, which of course leads to the fact that at some point I will need to do just the Redemption rye as well. 
Now, I need to say up front that Redemption outsources their whiskeys from Midwest Grain Products of Indiana, or more commonly known as MGP, but were formerly known as Lawrenceburg Distillers Indiana, or LDI. They are based in Lawrenceburg, Indiana, a town of about just over 5,000 people in southeast Indiana on the Ohio River west of Cincinnati. MGP began back in 1941 and turns out about 50 different spirits, including Yellowstone bourbon, which you can hear about on the bourbon break from episode 1.22. And they are responsible for providing the whiskey for Redemption High Rye bourbon as well. The Redemption High Rye follows a similar mash bill as other high-rye bourbons in the MGP portfolio, coming in at 60% corn, 36% rye, and 4% barley. It's an interesting blend because it's also corn-heavy and with just enough rye to push the limits on categorizing it as a high-rye bourbon as a rye rather than a bourbon. So according to the Redemption web pages, they say, we think you can never have too much rye. So our high rye bourbon recipe approaches the upper limit of allowable rye grain in a bourbon mash bill. It's 46% alcohol by volume. So a 92 proof whiskey. There's no aging information on the bottle, but the Redemption web pages identify that it has been aged for an average of two and a half years. I love the aesthetic of the Redemption High Rye bottle. It's got that old time flask-like shape with the Redemption name emblazoned into the glass. I also like the green label, which isn't a color you see too often on whiskey bottles. The overall look of the bottle gives off that old frontier feel to it. The eye of the high rye bourbon is somewhere between caramel and sweet tea, but not crappy restaurant sweet tea. Instead, it's that good down south dark sweet tea that lets only a little light through, and what light does come through gives the whiskey a golden hue. The nose is dominated by the corn, and there's significant sweetness here as well. And there's some vanilla here, and also some earthy vegetation like river grass or meadow of wild grasses. And that rye certainly lets you know it's in there with some hints of spice like ginger and nutmeg. The palate opens with the woodiness of the aging barrel, so the oak is there from the start. Then the palate progresses to all of that corn and rye sweetness with vanilla and caramel and a tinge of flair from the alcohol, which brings out the rye's spicy qualities with cinnamon and pepper and a bit of stewed fruit back there as well. The finish is neither short nor long, and it maintains most of the palate in the finish. Perhaps the big difference in the finish is that the charred oak makes a stronger appearance in the finish than it does in the palate, but because it doesn't linger, it's more of a pragmatic farewell from the oak. For a $30 bottle, the Redemption High Rye is not bad, but it's also not different from a dozen other High Rye bourbons out there, so it's not going on my you-need-to-rush-out-and-get-a-bottle-of-this list, but it's also not going on my decline-if-someone-offers-you-a-glass-of-it list. And those, my friends, are my thoughts about Redemption High Rye bourbon. As a final note and my regular disclaimer, as always, please keep in mind that the Fishing Professor Bourbon Break reviews are not sponsored. The distillers have not sent me samples, nor do they influence my reviews at all, though I am always open to sponsorship, bribery, and extortion. The bourbons I review are purchased out of pocket, and my reviews are based on the keen sense of bourbon know-how developed over many years in many of this country's finest watering holes, drinking establishments, dives, pubs, honky-tonks, and back alley speakeasies. 
Hey, and speaking of, I want to give a quick shout out to a bar that I just recently experienced out on the frozen Lake of the Woods on the Minnesota-Canadian border. This is a bar that is owned and operated by Zippel Bay Resort, and it's situated on the frozen lake. Not next to the lake, not on land, but on the lake. The bar is heated out there, and there are big screen TVs and a limited menu of food and snacks, and the clientele are locals and visitors who are all just out on the ice to fish. And I'm talking, of course, about the Igloo Bar. And what makes the Igloo so awesome isn't that there's a bar out on the ice. It's that if you can actually go into the bar and fish from inside the bar, the wooden bench seats and tables have augered out ice holes. <laughs> ice holes. You ice holes. They have augered out ice holes. I augured out holes in the ice so you can literally sit at your table and drop your line in to fish for walleye, sauger, northern pike, and other ice fishing species. And if that's not enough, the Igloo has the only two heated outhouses on the Lake of the Woods, which I can tell you is a luxury beyond luxuries on the ice. Plus, if you're looking for the Igloo after dark when the fishing has stopped because there's no night bite on the ice... Well, you can't miss it because there's a giant traffic light, the only traffic light, I'm told, for hundreds of miles, and certainly the only traffic light on the ice, despite the fact that the local resorts keep the ice roads plowed and marked all across the lake. This is the place to come to have a few drinks and talk ice fishing with the patrons because the only folks hanging out in the igloo are ice anglers. And yes, the place is painted to look just like a giant igloo and the two heated outhouses look like two little outhouse igloos. Just a fantastic bar experience in a remote angling community. And so Here's to a long life and a happy one, a quick death and an easy one, a good girl and an honest one, a glass of bourbon and another one. As always, if you have comments about this week's bourbon break, feel free to email me at sid at inventafishing.com. Let's get back to the water. All right, my listening crew, it is time to cast into the Fishing Professor's Top 10 list for this week. And this week, I want to look at some lures for some of the toothiest critters in the ocean. I'm talking about my top 10 favorite lures for targeting bluefish. And I'm talking about targeting snapper blues, tailor blues, or the big blues, blue gators, and harbor blues, them big bruiser blues. Now, I used to be a bluefish fanatic. I probably still am, but I mean, I would chase them up and down the beaches, literally catching a hundred plus fish a day for weeks on end. So I have definitely developed some preferences for the lures I use to target blues of all sizes. It would, of course, be easy just to say that the best lures for fishing for blues are spoons, but what fun is that? Plus, taking blues on the surface with a great popper or a casting plug from the beach, those are awesome ways to catch blues. Now, the reality is that if you've ever fished a bluefish blitz, whether from a boat, a bridge, pier, or shore, you know that it really doesn't matter what you throw into the chaos that you're going to get smashed. But that's why having incredibly strong, durable lures is a must when targeting the piranha of the Atlantic. Wire leader is pretty much a necessity. And that just prevents being cut off by those gnashing razor teeth. 
Blues are voracious feeders. They won't stop eating even if their bellies are full. I've seen blues so full that their prey is literally falling from their mouths because their bellies and gullets are too full to hold anymore, yet they keep on eating. And of course, there are all the myths and rumors we grew up with in bluefish country about feeding bluefish frenzies that left surfers without toes or anglers without fingers. Now, whether true or not, I don't know, but they're great stories that immortalize the razor teeth and feeding frenzies of bluefish. Hey, speaking of stories... You may have heard me mention in last week's top 10 list of my favorite devotional fishing books that John Hersey's book Blues is one of my favorites. And it really is not just because it's the only truly bluefish-focused book out there, but because it's so beautifully written. And before we get to the actual top 10 lures for targeting bluefish, how about a few bluefish facts to put us in the mood? So bluefish are found in the Atlantic, the Pacific, the Mediterranean, the Black Sea, and the Indian Ocean. Blues are pelagic fish. Blues are the only extant species of the family Pomatomidae, which means they're the only ones still living. There were other, other members of this family that have died off. So blues can grow to 59 inches and can reach weights of as much as 33 pounds, though finding fish over 20 pounds these days is pretty rare. Blues can live to be about nine years old. In Australia and New Zealand, blues are known simply as tailors, and in South Africa, they're called elf or shad. In the U.S., blues have the reputation as the piranha of the Atlantic, as I've already said. In Turkey, blues are known as the queen of the sea and are one of the most popular food fish across all of Turkey. There's a really interesting documentary about bluefish in Turkey called Prince of Bosphorus, but it's hard to find and even harder to find with English subtitles. I bring this up because nearly 70% of all bluefish harvest takes place in Turkey, and blues face serious overfishing there. When he was about five years old, one of my brothers contributed the recipe fried bluefish to his kindergarten cookbook. The recipe said something like, catch bluefish, fry bluefish. Pretty damn accurate if you ask me. And with that, let's count down my favorite lures for targeting bluefish. At number 10, let's open up with Cotton Cordell's Pencil Popper. This is a classic lure that has had anglers busting blues on the surface for decades. It earned its reputation as a topwater design for targeting stripers, but inevitably, if you're fishing for stripers, your lure is going to get smashed by a bluefish, and the pencil popper proved to be a great lure for busting blues on the surface as well as stripers, and has thus earned a reputation as a top-tier bluefish lure. It has the reputation as also being a big fish lure. It's great for surf casting because... The weighted tail of the lure makes it great for long cast, and that same weight creates a lot of swinging in the retrieve action, just like an injured bait fish. It also bobs well when resting in the water, and the hardware on this lure is tough and stands up well to the razor teeth of the bluefish. All right, at number nine, I need to be sure to point out to the sheer effectiveness of a white bucktail when it comes to bluefish, but I'm not going to point to any one company's white bucktail because when it comes to blues, any white bucktail will be effective. However, I do need to point out that even though white bucktails are super effective for bluefish, they are not the most enduring of lures for engaging those knife-edged teeth of blues. Bucktails inevitably get shredded by bluefish strikes, and even the smallest tailor blues can demolish a bucktail after only one strike. 
One of my favorite ways to fish for medium to smaller blues is to use a tandem bucktail with a heavier beanhead bucktail forward and a smaller bullethead bucktail aft. However, this rig lasts only but so long because the blues will annihilate the aft bucktail very quickly, and the monofilament that ties the rig inevitably won't hold up against the blues' teeth. So while it's a remarkably effective lure for blues, bucktails aren't the most efficient lure in terms of longevity when fishing for blues. All right, at number eight, let's throw out Rapala's X-Rap Magnum, one of my favorite ways to troll for blues. I like the smaller X-Rap Magnum in the four and three-eighths inch size for blues. The 20 color variations are all great, though I lean toward the blue mackerel and blue sardine for trolling blues. I like the smaller model because it dives to a depth of about 10 feet, keeping the lure in the upper portion of the water column where the blues cruise and feed. And yes, I do rig the X-Rap Magnum with wire leader when targeting blues. In fact, with the exception of the tandem bucktail rig I just mentioned, I use wire on all lures for targeting blues because of their razor teeth, which will slice monofilament or braid with very little effort. All right, at number seven, I like Daiwa's Salt Pro Minnow, and I like all three versions for targeting blues, the floating version for hitting blues on top and the bullet versions in the sinking and fast sinking for subsurface surface presentation. One of my favorite things about these lures is their castability and sheer accuracy I get when casting these lures. Like a lot of other lures that have proven themselves as great for targeting blues, the Salt Pro Minnow was designed for surf casting for stripers, but like I said, if you're surf casting for stripers, you will inevitably find blues attacking your lure, and the Salt Pro makes that transition from striper to blues very effectively. I like how the Salt Pro minnow sinks level, maintaining the swimming fish visual appeal, and I like its weight system and small lip design for long casts, especially in windier conditions. The sinking version comes in two sizes, a one and a half ounce and a two and one eighth ounce, and they've got a 1.4 millimeter heavy wire through construction and two aught size heavy duty saltwater hooks. They come in about a dozen color variations, all of which are great for blues, but keep an eye on the bunker pattern as being particularly great. All right, at number six, let's go with Deadly Dick Long Casting Jigging Lures. These are very popular striper and bluefish lures on the East Coast, but they also find application over on the West Coast as jigging lures as well. Think of the deadly dick long casting jigging lure as an elongated spoon, like someone took a castmaster style spoon and put it on a medieval stretching rack, pulling them long and lean, and then adding reflective color to the flat side to give the silver of the metal lure even more reflective appeal. They come in sizes ranging from two and a half inches to five and a half inches. There's also a new big version that weighs in at five ounces that is great for targeting bigger blues. Between the great visual reflection of these lures, the solid metal construction that holds up endlessly against a blue's teeth, and the great darting action of the lure that works best with short, quick jerks to create a fantastic darting action in a lure, these are just great blues lures. All right, bring it up in the middle. Let's go with Live Target's Flutter Sardine. The Flutter Sardine is part of Live Target's Injected Core Technology series that also includes the Flutter Shad and Erratic Shiner. What these lures do is rethink the concept of the traditional spoon by encasing lifelike bait bodies within, within a clear plastic body that works like a traditional spoon. The Flutter Sardine is specifically designed for saltwater application and is a great bluefish lure, especially for those around 8-pound and under fish. 
They come in six color variation. All are great for blues. And they come in five size options ranging from three eighths of an ounce up to one and a half ounces. I should note too, that in 2019, the flutter sardine was awarded the ICAST best new product award for saltwater lures, while the erratic shiner won the same award for freshwater lures. That this design won the award in both salt and freshwater should be testament to the effectiveness of this new approach to spoons. And I can confidently tell you that it works great with bluefish. Okay, at number four, how about we go with the classic and fundamental bluefish lure in the crocodile casting spoon from Lure Jensen. These spoons have the reputation as one of the most versatile saltwater lures ever made. There's nothing fancy about them. They're solid metal spoons with really tough hardware. This is a lure that can handle the teeth of bluefish by the thousands for years on end. They just don't get damaged by the brutality of a blue strike. They're available in a range of sizes from a quarter of an ounce up to two and a quarter ounces. They come in a range of color options, but I have to say that my go-to for blues is always the plain chrome. The unique curve of this spoon body gives the crocodile spoon great erratic wobbly action, just flat out a near perfect lure for targeting bluefish of any size. All right, and number three, let's stick with spoons and go to Castmaster Spoons by Acme Tackle. These spoons have a distinctively different design than the crocodile spoon, and they always remind me of what it would look like if you had a cylinder of metal that you sliced off at an angle. That creates a very aerodynamic body, and that makes the Castmaster Spoon one of the best spoons for distance casting. And it is, as anyone who has fished for blues off the beach knows, sometimes you need that extra something to get the lure out to the bluefish schools. These spoons are incredibly solid with fantastically durable hardware. They come in a range of versions, including various colors, a hammered series, a rattle series, and some with added flash tape. I'm usually an advocate for the plain Castmaster Chrome, but when it comes to bluefish, I'm particularly fond of the two versions that come with bucktail teasers. One version has a treble hook and one has a single hook. There's also a version with a tube tail teaser, which is also great for blues, but I like it better for mackerel or stripers. Okay, in the number two position, I have to give props to Sea Striker's Gotcha Plug. This is a lure I grew up fishing up and down the beaches for bluefish, and it has probably hooked and landed more blues for me than just about any other lure. You want to talk about erratic action? The Gotcha Plug darts all over the place with short, sharp twitches to the rod tip. There are a few, ver few versions of this lure, and I've always been a fan of the 100 series white plastic body with a red head. It's flat out a classic, tried and true, reliable lure for so many species of fish. However, when it comes to bluefish specifically, as effective as the 100 series is with blues, when it comes to the blues, I often switch over to the 300 series, which has a chrome metal body, which is more durable than the plastic bodies. There's also a 500 series, which has a chrome coating over the plastic body, which I think helps reduce scratching to the body of the lure after many, many bluefish strikes. I will also say that all of the Gotcha series have really saw strong dual treble hooks, but there are two versions that come rigged with a bucktail teaser at the back of the lure. The 100 series with bucktail is rigged with a bucktail teaser and a single aft hook whose shaft is embedded in the body of the lure so it doesn't move independent of the lure body instead of the second treble. The 1500 series also has a bucktail teaser and a single aft hook instead of the single, the second treble hook. However, this hook is rigged at the back of the lure through the eye of the hook without the hook shaft embedded into the lure, so it swings free. 
So that brings me to my all-time favorite bluefish lure, and a lure that I have used so often and with such dedication that for a very long time I wore a smaller version of the lure with the hooks removed as a pendant on a leather cord around my neck as a necklace. But before I reveal what that lure is, let's get a quick recap of the other bluefish lures in this list because I'm old and I've already forgotten what they were. All right, at number 10, Cotton Cordell's Pencil Popper. At number 9, White Bucktail. At 8, Rapala's Magnum. At 7, Daiwa's Salt Pro Minnow. At 6, the Deadly Dick Long Casting Jigging Lures. At 5, Live Target's Flutter Sardine. At 4, the Crocodile Casting Spoon. At 3, Castmaster Spoons. At 2, Sea Strikers Gotcha. And that, ladies and germs, brings me to my all-time favorite bluefish, and that of bluefish lure. And that, of course, is the classic of classic spoons, the Hopkins No Equal Spoon. This is a classic spoon in the truest sense, designed back in 1949 by R.L. Hopkins. The No Equal Spoon has earned a reputation as one of the overall most effective lures in the history of recreational fishing. I love the action of this spoon, and the hammered finish gives the reflective qualities of a scaled fish. One of the best things about the Hopkins No Equal is the weight of these spoons. They tend to be heavier than that of other spoons I've mentioned in this list, and as such have greater casting distance than other spoons of the same length. These spoons are forged from solid stainless steel. They aren't stamped or molded like other spoons. They come rigged with a stainless steel split ring and a super sharp musted Dura steel treble hook. You can also get them rigged with a single hook and a tube teaser or a single hook with a feather teaser. Both are great, but I really love the version with the feather teasers. They also make these in their shorty version as well. They come in sizes ranging from one-third of an ounce up to six ounces, so you can pick a size based on the tackle you're using and on the size of the blues you're targeting. All in all, the Hopkins No Equal Spoons really are my favorite, highest recommended lure out there for targeting bluefish. And so those are my thoughts about lures for targeting blues, whether small tailor blues or big bruisers. Of course, I assume you have your favorites as well that probably aren't on my list. And I'm sure that if you're a lure manufacturer whose lure I didn't mention, you want me to know about your lures and you should let me know about them. You can email me at sid at inventivefishing.com. And as always, if you'd like a fishing professor's top 10 about a particular fishing related thing, just send me an email and I'll see about adding it to my list for future top tens. Let's get back to rod casting. It was an early morning yesterday. I was up before the dawn and I really have enjoyed my stay, but I must be moving on like a king without a castle. Like a queen without a throne, I'm an early morning fisher, and I must be moving on. And yes, my listening crew, it is time for me to be moving on. And that then brings us to the end of another gripping episode of the Fishing Professor Rodcast. I am so glad that you were able to join me for this week's episode. But before we shut things down for the week, I do want to thank Paul Van Reenen of Unfair Lures for taking the time to talk with me this week. And for all of you inshore anglers out there, be sure to check out the full catalog of Unfair Lures. You can find Unfair Lures at www.unfairlures.com, and you can find them in tackle shops and online all over the place. I do hope you enjoyed my analytical assessment of Redemption High Ride Bourbon and that you sunk your teeth into my top 10 lures for bluefish. Oh, and while I'm talking about bluefish, 
I just had this wacky memory from when I was in high school and I was doing a lot of blue fishing back then. There was, well, actually there still is because they're still there. There's this great tackle shop in Nags Head, North Carolina, that back in the mid 80s had these great long sleeve t-shirts emblazoned with the graphic of a bluefish wearing those classic Ray-Ban sunglasses. And under the pick, the big tech simply said, Blues Brothers. So I guess since the Blues Brothers movie came out in 1980, the design would have been somewhat culturally relevant at the time. I remember buying that shirt and wearing it so often that the thing actually became so threadbare that it was nearly transparent and looked to be moth-eaten in spaces. I love that t-shirt. And there wasn't anything fancy about it. This was before we had things like tactical fishing gear or performance gear, or even before we used to use the word apparel. It was a t-shirt with a bluefish in sunglasses like the Blues Brothers wore. What more do you want? Hell, one day I should do a fishing professor's top 10 countdown of the best t-shirts I've owned. Not a review of apparel or tactical designs, but just of t-shirts. At number three, we have the tour shirt from Dylan and the Dead from 1987. And at number two, we have TW Tackle's Blues Brothers shirt. And I miss that shirt. Talking about Blues Brothers makes me miss that even more. Love Blues. Love Blues Brothers. Love Blue Fishing. Hey, before I sign off today, I do have a message for our brothers and sisters out there behind the line. The float has gone under. I say again, the float has gone under. And that just about does it for this week's episode of the Fishing Professor Rodcast. Be sure to look for next week's episode, which will drop on Wednesday next week. And I hope you all, all of you, all of the members of the listening crew, and even those of you just visiting for the first time, spread the word about the Rodcast. And of course, if you have a comment or question about anything on this week's show or have recommendations for future top tens, bourbon breaks, interviews, or information about specific fishing-related issues, please feel free to email me at sid at inventorfishing.com or leave a reply in any of the comment sections for any of the podcast platforms you use to listen to the Rodcast. Hey, be sure to follow Inventifishing on Twitter, Instagram, and friend us on Facebook at Inventifishing. And be sure to check out all of the great video content over on the Inventifishing YouTube channel, which includes great gear reviews, new product introductions, and a mess of other great content. Yep, I'll be back next week with another episode. Sure would like for you to be here, too. Until then, this is Sid Dobrin, the fishing professor. Fish on! The Fishing Professor Show is copyrighted by Inventive Fishing, LLC. Any rebroadcast of the podcast without the consent from Inventive Fishing, LLC is strictly prohibited. Fish on!